Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. It was the most dominant single mountain exploit I can remember seeing. I, f- I feel as though we're in a phase of transition and it's a transition to better performances. But the questions that are, mm. are being asked of him are probably fair given the context of cycling's history. Well, there's a lot to talk about in this episode of the Science of Sport podcast and uh, not only to do with the Tour de France, which we'll get into in a few moments' time, but also a lot around the Olympic Games coming up in a couple of weeks. Well, we hope coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, A lot of the athletes are really on their way to Tokyo and um, we know a couple of the South African teams that have uh, headed to Japan and are in the outskirts of Tokyo getting ready for the Olympic Games and uh, a lot of stuff happening in the sport and uh, Controversy hitting the Olympic Games. Well, when I say controversy, lots of happenings happening in the Olympic Games space um, before the Games have even started. So let, let's first of all start off with the uh, the latest news that came out uh, just yesterday that a state of emergency now has been um, declared in Tokyo, mm. um, obviously around the COVID pandemic. And uh, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, with me here today. Um, I mean, the implications of this obviously are that the Olympic organisers are saying the Olympics themselves will be almost in a little bubble apart from Tokyo society. But do you think it threatens the possibility of the Games not happening? No, it's, no it's, it, the Games will happen because they're committed. I think they were committed eight years ago yeah. <laughs> when they awarded it. And the city makes the commitment and the investment. There's, there's too much money riding on it for it to not have happened. Even the postponement from last year to this year was a big step but they were never going to cancel them I don't think mm-hmm. and once once they committed to the new dates I mean barring an absolute calamity they were going to go ahead we, we said that at the beginning of the year even mm-hmm. towards the end of last year is that they're too big to not fail but too big to not start what it does threaten potentially is the integrity of some of the events I mean I'm still waiting to see what happens if there are if there's a if there's a leak in that bubble or a, a mm. hole in the bubble and you get a little outbreak among people in the village and then you've got to tr- potentially isolate the, because the IOC is committed to isolating and quarantining people who are infected and so how aggressively they do that could affect in a knock knock on way you know dominoes falling athletes who are exposed athletes who are exposed to those secondary tertiary and so on so that could be quite interesting. I mean, right now here in South Africa, we've got the, the British and Irish Lions rugby team um, playing in basically a series against our, our Springboks starting in a few weeks. We've already seen one of those games called off because of a breach in the, in the COVID bubble. The South African team that match against Georgia this weekend has been called off. There was a case yesterday in the British and Irish Lions allegedly because some of the hotel staff uh, brought the, the virus into the bubble. And so the whole thing is now in jeopardy and it, it dis, it's so disruptive. So whilst it goes ahead, it doesn't go ahead normally. And I think that's the danger for the Olympics now. And I guess you know, there's always a possibility of something happening. But I, it would be interesting to see what happened if you know one of the favourites who got into a final and was tested positive, obviously that person would then be removed from the final. So potentially down the road, we could see some of the athletes not being able to get into finals purely because they have a positive test. It has to happen. I mean, yeah. it's already happened in sport, in golf. There was a Spanish um, golfer, John Rahm, a couple of weeks back, pulled out of an event when he was leading it by a number of shots. He ended up uh, going away, spending his isolation, and he won a major a few weeks after. So all ended well there. But that happened. We've seen cyclists earlier this year. I think Pogacar's team had to pull out of one of the classics because of a positive test in their, in their team. So, of course, it's going to happen. And it'll be a real shame if it happens 
to the big names, the headline stories. But unfortunately, COVID is a headline story of the games already. So Mm. it's not going to be great. And then, of course, it's going to have repercussions for fans. I was reading that they're now saying, and this is somewhat bizarre, they're going to allow small numbers into the indoor venues, but they don't want fans in the outdoor venues, which seems somewhat paradoxical because the you know the density of crowds is yeah. probably a bigger driver than the number doesn't sound particularly logical that does it i suspect it might be that they're saying actually the, the problem with getting 10,000 people to the olympic stadium is the transport and that's mm. where the certainly in the euros that are happening right now the i saw some data out of england saying that the the growth in cases in the in the UK is being driven predominantly, almost exclusively, by men because they're thinking these are the guys going to pubs and to watch football matches. Yeah. So anyway, back to Japan. Um, the so the spectator thing is in doubt. It always was anyway. Now they're saying they're only going to have VIPs at the opening ceremony, and I mean there could still be five thousand of them, so it won't <laughs> be. But it's five thousand in a eighty thousand stadium is cavernous. So, yeah, it's not going to be a an, an ideal. No, it's spe- not going to be the greatest opening ceremony in, in history. No, it's not. It'll be interesting to see whether the opening ceremonies uh, are like we've seen in the past with uh, literally thousands of people participating and being part of the opening ceremony. I would imagine they've had to scale back on those numbers themselves. So we won't see the the, no. the multi-million thousands people standing in formation on the field of the Olympic Stadium. Or if you're Tokyo and the Japanese committee, you're saying this is our opportunity to be on the world stage. We're yeah. going to go for it because we're almost... Well, they're not being Seems forced doubtful. to yeah. hold the Olympics. They want it as well for their yeah. own invest, return on investment. But uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's going to be heavily modified and there are going to be major stories coming out of the, the, the bubble in the village. As we said on a previous podcast, they're testing twice a day. Okay, Two, two slots each athlete once a day mm. and they're going to have to act on those and so that's going to be a story it's just a shame this is how, the situation we've been dealt it's not great for the athletes to be tested twice well once a day isn't it I mean it's 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 an invasive procedure being tested I wouldn't want to be tested every single day I suppose that's the price you pay for making the Olympic Games yeah you, you mm. it's a trade off yeah you either do that or there's no games. So. No, exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the athletes uh, that have um, been in the news over the last couple of days. Shakiri Richardson, the uh, athlete who ran a 10.60 recently in the 100 metres, uh, been uh, banned uh, because of a marijuana test. Now, that's interesting because as far as I know, there's no performance uh, mm. benefit for, for smoking the odd joint here and there. But uh, <laughs> she has been banned. Why? Why? Well, it's it's on the list. So, and the reason it's on the list is an interesting story in history and politics. So, it used to be on the list at all times. So, so those who don't know, the World Anti-Doping Agency publishes a list annually of substances that are banned, and it classifies them as prohibited in competition or prohibited at all times. So, for instance, growth hormones, steroids, testosterone, at any stage. So, whether you're in your off season, a month out from racing at a race, whatever, those substances in your urine are considered doping violations. Mm. Others are prohibited only in competition. So, for instance, cortisone and marijuana is one of those. In competition? In competition only. Uh. No, so, sorry, so it used to be at all times. So and you then can't they, just chill out between heats. No. <laughs> or the night, or the couple nights well, before, couple as nights. Richardson's story tells us. So, yeah. so, so anyway, so that they, and then what they've also done, and I'll get to where I'm going with this in a moment, is over time they've reduced the threshold, uh, sorry, increased the threshold for detection. So it used to be that you used to have only a very small amount in the urine and it was considered positive. They've, they've upped that. So they've almost become more permissive towards marijuana. First, by moving it from one list to the other. Mm. Secondly, by changing the amount that you can potentially use before you get flagged up. Right. But what they haven't done is take it off despite the fact that you're right, there's no obvious known performance benefits. And in fact, if anything, for many sports, it's probably detrimental. Yes. Um, So the active ingredients... In my experience during my student days, it wasn't particularly good for (laughs) academics either. (laughs) But you were relaxed, so that's right. Yes, I was relaxed. So so the active ingredient is THC. That's specifically Mm. what they're being tested for. And you'd know that that causes relaxation and it's potentially got benefits for pain. So... If you asked someone who was staunch anti-doping, defending its existence, that would probably be why they would say it's on the list. Because an athlete could use it to deal with anxiety, which is performance enhancing. Mm. Well, reducing anxiety is performance enhancing. And they could use it for pain. Right? So that's potentially beneficial for performance. 
But it, but uh, the, and the other thing they'd say is that water puts a substance on there for one of three reasons. Sorry, two or three reasons. One is the performance enhancing benefit that I've mentioned. Two is it's against the spirit of the sport, which is very arbitrary and subjective. Yeah. I mean, who becomes the judge of that? And and that's why this one in particular is so controversial because it's a social issue and a sport issue. And then the third one is that it uh, is potentially harmful to athletes. So again, with marijuana, there's a debate about how harmful is this. It's been legalized in many places across the world and states in the US, but people would still argue harm. Anyway, the real, I was reading something very interesting this morning. One of the main drivers to put it on the banned substance list is that the US, back in about the 1990s, insisted that marijuana be placed on the banned substance list because it tied in with a political campaign at the time to regulate drug use in the wider community. And so they wanted things like growth hormone and testosterone and so on, which no one would dispute, but also marijuana because it was part of a blanket um, drive towards eradicating drug use recreationally yeah. and societally. So in actual fact, the US was one of the main instigators for marijuana being on that list. Mm. I suspect that it'll come off that list now because of this. It's interesting because I remember the story of caffeine for many years. Caffeine was a banned substance on, the, on right. that list and uh, a couple of athletes got you know, uh, docked for, for time just for caffeine, but that's obviously not banned anymore mm. um, purely because there's not enough of a, a performance advantage for taking caffeine. Yeah, and also because once you put it on the list, you've got to test for it, you're going to yeah. catch people. And then you have to ask whether the controversy of catching someone for high doses of caffeine is worth the hassle. Yeah. And I think the same is probably true here. <clears throat> so mm. in Richardson's case, <clears throat> her explanation, excuse me, was that her mother had passed away. And so she smoked to deal with the stress of that. Yeah. Now, a couple of things on that is we can sit here and say that marijuana should, probably shouldn't be on the list. And as I say, I suspect that the negative press around this and the realization of how maybe foolish it is to put it on the list probably sees it being removed, if not next year, the year after. But at the same time, you're an elite athlete with aspirations of winning a gold medal. And I understand that you're going through what is obviously a very significant personal trauma. Mm. But at some point, someone in your, in your entourage has to say to you, listen, I know this is painful and I know you're hurting, but that's not what you need to do yeah. right now. Two days from now, you can do that. Let's, let's win this hundreds meter race. Let's qualify for the Olympics. Let's cope with it in some other way until then and then move on mm. because the rules are the rules and the yeah. athletes know that. So I feel sympathy for her, but not yes. I do and I don't. If, there if that is makes some sense. level, yeah, if she's going to compete at that level, she needs to have an understanding and she would have had it a pretty good understanding of what the rules are. I had to know. And, and yeah. so it's a shame that, and, and I'm not necessarily even critical of her because I wouldn't know how I would cope in that situation. But you'd think that someone in an entourage or, or in that support group has got to step in maybe. Mm. And, unless they didn't know, legitimately mm. didn't know, and she's doing it really on her own. But anyway, it's a, it's a shame because, I mean, you'd think we could at least reach the Olympics before a doping scandal, but no. Yeah. Here we are. So on to a subject that I think for us here in South Africa, obviously the Castor Semenya story is a big story, but um, two Namibian sprinters, Christian Mbom and Beatrice uh, Masalinghini, have both uh, now been, uh, well, demoted. Well, let's say demoted, not demoted, but they're unable to participate in the 400 metres because they've now fallen foul of the DSD policy yeah. um, and are now being told they have to run the 200 metres because they are DSD athletes. So without recounting the the many podcasts we've done around Castor Semeni, who's probably one of the most high-profile examples of DSD athletes. Just give us a bit of a pricey. Mm. First of all, what does DSD mean? So DSD, difference of sex development, yeah. um, and one-minute biology lesson. We develop primary and secondary sex characteristics of male or female as a result of a sequence of biological actions. So chromosomes are either XY for males, XX. If it's XY, then the gonads become testes. If it's XX, they become ovaries. If they're testes, testes produce testosterone. That testosterone then exerts its biological effect along with some of its, call them family members, like DHT. Um, and they are responsible for driving the development of primary sex characteristics, which are the genitalia, the re reproductive system, 
and secondary sex characteristics. Now, those secondary sex characteristics are the ones that we see later in life mm. uh, at puberty, adolescence, deepening of the voice, hair growth. But for sport, increased muscle mass, shape of the skeleton, larger heart, larger lungs, more hemoglobin, all obviously relevant to performance. So with, with what happens with a difference of sex development is that something along that chain, from chromosome to gonads to hormones to phenotype or, or physical characteristic, is broken. So for instance, they have testosterone, but they can't use it. They're insensitive. So it's like, it's like having keys, but no locks. Yeah. You can't open the door. Uh, or they have testosterone, but they can't convert some of that testosterone to something called DHT. And then what happens is they don't, develop the se- the primary sex characteristics, but they do get the secondary. So when they are born, they have the external appearance of girls in terms of the genitalia. But when they hit puberty, they develop the secondary sex characteristics of males. So those DSDs create this real challenge because they they blur the boundary between between the physical characteristics in sport of male and female. Does that sum yeah. it up? Yeah. So, I mean, the case of these two Namibian sprinters, obviously competing in the 400 meters, which is their chosen event now, being forced to do the 200 if they do, they test that because of high testosterone levels. I mean, is that is that a, is that the only way they test it? In other words, if their testosterone levels, as we've seen with the Castasemenia case, are at a certain level, if they don't reduce those testosterone levels to a certain level, they are no longer able to participate in those particular events. But Let's just, before we even get onto that, the events that are only applicable here (laughs) are the 400 and the 800, aren't they? And the 1500. And the 1500, And And there's so much in... What you've asked now is is basically the... The The nub. Yeah, it's it's basically a summation of the three or four key problems with the policy. Mm. The, the first question is, how do they test it? Now, testosterone is one marker, because if you, if you have one of these DSDs, you would have testosterone levels in the male range, even though you're competing in women's sports. So, of course, if they tested the, the testosterone of all the athletes, they'd flag up pretty quickly which are the candidates for this policy to be applied on. Mm. There are other ways, once you've identified them, that you then can test. For instance, ultrasound would reveal the internal organ structure of a male, not a female. You know, in other words, there'd be no uterus. Very simple obvious thing Mm. and then there are more sophisticated tests you just do genetic dna type testing and you would very quickly identify not only a dsd but the specific dsd at molecular level one of the one of the big issues and it came up in the semenya trial is how do you identify a person to test because um and this is an an argument that semenya's lawyer made there is that the, the policy requires a degree of subjectivity which requires some kind of stereotype to be applied to say, hey, that person who just won that 400, that's not a woman. And that's obviously fraught with major yeah. problems. Yeah. So, so when the story came out on these Namibians, the same thing on social media blew up. Everyone said, oh, they were just picked on because they didn't look and conform to a, a Western typical perception of a stereotype of what a woman would be. Mm. Now, so I don't know how they were identified. I was just incidentally sent... And do we know, I mean, just taking a step back on that if we don't know how they're identified either somebody's flagged them or somebody's brought it to the world athletics um, attention do we know how they would have gone and done those tests to do to decide whether they were dsd athletes and had an advantage the previous iteration of the dsd policy listed five things that were done it was chromosomal so you can straight away detect that these athletes would be xy that's That, and that's your first point of departure. Now you say, well, here's someone running in women's track and field with XY. Clearly, we're either dealing with transgender woman or DSD. It's one of the two. Right. Then you can look at the testosterone levels. So there's a blood assay for testosterone. You can do an internal examination. Uh, the ultrasound would reveal that. And then, as I say, there's molecular methods as well. So would they have so likely it, done all of those things? Yeah, yeah, probably eventually, but as the first the first thing is probably the simplest one and that's just say well it's XY. Yeah. And the reason they'd have to do that incidentally is the the World Athletics policy now is quite clear that the DSD policy only applies to certain criteria and it lists them. It says an individual must be XY, so you've got to exclude XX because you do get some medical conditions where someone's XX with high testosterone levels. And they don't get governed by this policy. It's different. It's a different thing. They have to have testes, so they would have to discover those on, on internal examination. 
and they would have to have testosterone level in the male range, which is much higher than the female range. So, so they, they would have checked off for A, B, C, yes, yes, and yes. Okay, we, we're dealing with a DSD. The specific DSD, that's a molecular question, which can be answered a few days or weeks later, but is actually secondary to the to the yeah. fact that now we've at least discovered one. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, there's Christine and Bohm in particular and 48.5 for 400, which is the quickest in the world this year, I believe, um, and would have put her in with a realistic chance of a gold medal in Tokyo yeah. at the age of 18. And w- one of the things actually that World Athletics presented, interestingly, at the, at the Semenya trial was there is a characteristic pattern by which these DSD athletes emerge is that they they suddenly improve very significantly from about 16 to 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And so that's significant improvement, which is typically much larger than happens in biological female athletes, is one of the flags. And maybe that's the thing that triggered them to look at these Namibians. Maybe it was the Namibians themselves alerted World Athletics. I, I don't know. But whatever, yeah. whatever the case is, now they've been told that they can only go to Tokyo if they run the 200, which brings us to the absurd paradox of the policy. Yeah. yeah, if you have a DST, you can only run certain events, but not others, and they don't necessarily make a difference whether you're running two hundred right. or so five thousand. In the case of Casta Semenya, and this this was played out last week mm-hmm. uh, on Wednesday, and Boma runs a four hundred in Poland, illegal. On yeah. Sunday, she was in Stockholm in a two hundred, legal. Legal. <laughs> the same person with the same physiological makeup which is argued very eloquently by World Athletics to be the source of the advantage. That, that was the thing about their, you know, their first DSD policies weren't, weren't the greatest documents you've ever seen in your life. They didn't, they didn't argue the concept of advantage very well. But the one, the one that they eventually took to the Semenya trial was an unbelievably strong physiological document. It argued beautifully why testosterone was the source, the primary source of advantage, how it made a difference between male and female, how DSD athletes would benefit, and therefore this policy was necessary. (laughs) Now the reality is that if testosterone is making that difference to performance, it's doing it in a 100, and it's doing it in a 10K, and in a marathon, and in a shot put event that lasts one and a half seconds, and a long jump that lasts five seconds. So how on earth can you have a policy that is so strong in concept principle only applied to a narrow range of events you see and that's the that's the weird paradox now and the only way to understand that's you, you got to understand the history and the, how the law was applied yeah because what happened there was they were they were taken to court in 2015 the court said you need to come back with evidence that these dsd high levels of testosterone make a difference and world athletics said fine give us a couple of years they went away to find that evidence, but they, they couldn't. Yeah. They could only find it in the 400, 800. Yeah. And that's why we have this bizarre situation. Well, I suppose in their defense, they are using evidence-based <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in that respect, the, yeah, even were, though it doesn't sound particularly logical. Right. So in a literal sense, the policy is evidence-based. Yes. But the, but the evidence of the policy contradicts its principle, and that's it's yeah. untidy. And incidentally, there's... There's another athlete, Francine Nyansabo, who has qualified in the 5,000. Not sure if she's been selected by Burundi. So we will, in theory, in Tokyo, see DSD athletes both sides of the band range. Right. We'll see 200-meter athletes run, and we'll see a 5,000. But we'll see none in that range in the middle, even though all of them are probably getting the same advantages. Yeah, interesting. So. A couple of other stories coming through on the wire. Salwa Eid, the... Uh, Bahrainian athlete, she's been given a, a two-year ban uh, for anti-doping violations. I mean, that that's an interesting one. And then Brianna McNeil, uh, also a doping violation, 100-meter champion in 2016 the Olympic Games for tampering with samples. Just uh, give us a bit more detail on those because, mm. they're, they're, I mean, as much as they're sad cases just close to the Olympic Games, they're also quite interesting in, in, in why they happened. Well, they're big names because Salwa Eid Nasser is the world champion, the 400. Mm. And so she's now ruled out of that event, which opens it up big time. Um, hers was a whereabouts violation. She missed tests, basically. And she's got a bit of a history of it, isn't she? Yeah, I believe so. She, she's Nigerian-born, running for Bahrain. Um, I remember when she came onto the scene and suddenly improved very quickly. And, <clears throat> I mean, the tone of today's podcast is very much, unfortunately, skepticism. But, but one of the flags for 
doping and suspicion is sudden improvement. And she was a case like that. I remember people saying, hang on, where's, where's this coming from? Yeah. Uh, it's a matter of time. And sure enough, it's happened. And then Brianna McNeil's really interesting because hers is, is a, is a five-year ban, <coughs> which is hefty. Yeah. It's not the first time she's fallen foul. She served a one-year ban previously. In this instance, it was for tampering with the doping control process. She, she changed a date on a, on a medical form in the aftermath of missing a second test within a 12-month period. And she said it was because she was, felt she was going through a lot of emotional and traumatic experience from an abortion. And she changed the date of that medical procedure on a, on a form. And anti-doping said, no, you've changed that to try and mislead us about your whereabouts violation. And mm. so they, they slapped her with a five-year five-year ban which uh, and you know it's and that's what i was saying actually it wasn't uh an aid nasa that was uh, had been cuffed before it was in fact mcneil who has a bit of a history in this this is mm. probably one of the reasons why she got such a hefty ban yes. because there is some history yeah that plus plus i mean if the, you see if the courts believe you tampered on purpose yeah. now that's it's quite, you know what's that saying like the lies and bad the cover-up is the is the thing yeah. that's the problem it's here intentional well. yes it's deliberate and intentional so it's it's crazy though that I mean these are two these are this is an Olympic champion in the hurdles and a world champion in the four hundred, getting these hefty bans and it barely registers on the. I mean I don't know how many of our listeners go oh yes I read about that I yeah. I suspect many didn't know, and that's anyway it's just depressing that we're in this position where mm-hmm. big, these are big names this is not this is not some well, guy is it making depressing up the numbers or is it is it or is it confidence boosting to it's, know that they are catching these athletes on doing something against doping. I it, like to it's, look at this in a slightly more positive vein. Yes, you, you balance my cynicism. <laughs> uh, it's 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 confidence boosting in the sense that there's a process that's now at least filtering out dopers and yeah. potential cheats. What's depressing is that it happens with barely even making a headline yeah. because it's become so normalized. Yeah. Oh, another one bites the dust. And Okay, cool, happy days, let's go on. But do we have... I suppose we do have a bit more confidence that the eight who will now run in those finals are more likely to be believed than if these, if one of those eight was these two. But um, anyway, this is this is a podcast of skepticism today in many respects, and yeah, so we're 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 two we're two guilty athletes down in Tokyo, but mm. place your bets on how many you remain. Well, hopefully there won't be too many more stories than that. Um, well, I say hopefully, as I say, I, I think that uh, for every athlete that does uh, get caught for doing something that they shouldn't do, maybe it is a good sign that they are getting closer to getting more athletes. And I think it probably hopefully is a more of a deterrent for athletes, particularly those coming up through the ranks, to understand that you can get caught. And, you know, a five-year ban is essentially career-ending in many ways, isn't it? I can't imagine that you'd be able to come back uh, for Brianna McNeil from a five-year ban and still be competitive. No, I mean, unless you yeah. get that ban at 18. Yeah. You know, but she's an Olympic champ from 2016, so yeah. that's four years on, five years on, plus a yeah. No, that's no, done. That's not going to happen. That's done. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, so now let's get on to the subject of uh, one Tade Pagacha, who is, uh, as we see on our uh, social media feeds, of course you can follow us on sports, uh, on Science or Sport Podcast or Sports SciPod, and of course Ross is Sports Scientist and uh, Mike Finch is but there's been lots of discussion and lots of asking from a lot of our listeners uh, to comment on the performance of Tade Pagacha during the Tour de France at the moment, and uh, it's obviously something that is... Uh, I think Ross and I, to some extent, maybe there, as you mentioned a few moments ago, there's the cynicism versus the uh, less cynical approach to this. But um, there is a huge amount of discussion because Tadej Pogacar, stage eight, basically 
ends the race in in one <laughs> stage. He climbs up the Col de Rome, breaks the record going up there. He goes up the Col de Colombier. He rides away from everybody. He puts three minutes to into his nearest uh, competitors. Drops Richard Carapaz off his wheel, makes him look like he's some sort of beginner <laughs> riding in the autobus with the sprinters, um, and just dominates the stage and effectively dominates the Tour de France. Mm. Of course, the questions, and as we've seen on many of the media at the moment, there's been a huge amount of media around this. He's been obviously asked this by many journalists, and he's a young man of 23 years old. He's trying to do, in my opinion, his best to say, well, you know, my performances are what they are, and of course, it's acceptable for people to be cynical in this space. But I don't know where we start with this, but let's look, maybe we should look and say, what do the numbers suggest around what Pogacar's numbers are like? He he certainly is a talented athlete. We know that from his performance at the Tour de France last year. Based on what some of his handlers are saying, his performance and numbers are similar to what they were last year. Although we have heard via the grapevine that he might be performing slightly better. Does this raise suspicion first up? Yeah, of course it raises suspicion. I mean, that that performance on stage eight was the most dominant single mountain exploit I can remember seeing. I don't think it was the most absurd thing I remember seeing. I can think of two or three minutes of cycling and then in the last part of the last decade that were actually more comically absurd than that. But in terms of what happened there, you're talking, I think the the difference was three minutes 21 Mm. from the moment he attacked till, till the finish line. Now, to put that much on the, the group of riders behind you is, I can't, I, do you remember another day where a race favorite contender put that much time in everyone in one go? Yeah, and also some from so far out mm. and having experienced a huge amount of attacks early on in that stage. So it, he was under pressure early on in the stage was, as well. It was so aggressive. And, and so this is where, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the answer in a somewhat circular way. I, f- I find it very difficult to divorce the single performance from the context in which it happened. So when, when you say is it suspicious, the thing that makes it doubly suspicious to me is I read, for instance, Thomas de Ghent mm-hmm. saying in a media statement that he is producing power outputs now that would normally put him in the breakaway at the front of the race, and now he's sitting on hanging on at the back of the peloton. Mm-hmm. I saw a similar statement from Greg Van Avermaet saying that he um, is doing the same numbers as he always has in the past, but now he's hanging on and in danger of missing time cuts. And so when the, when the pros themselves are saying that... This is that, the Olympic champion talking. That's, yeah. And, um, I mean, the, the, the De Ghent quote, I want to actually find it and read it because it ended... The, the last part of the article was, was actually quite depressing. He said in it... Obviously, Thomas De Ghent's one of those athletes who's got a huge amount of respect within the cycling world, been around for a long time and one of the escapee expertise of the Tour de France. So he says, I rode one of my best 10-minute efforts ever at the start of stage eight. This was the one that ended with the spectacular mountain dominance. Those values have been recorded since 2013. Normally with those values, I can ride the whole peloton to pieces. Here I was 100 meters behind in a group of 70 riders and I started from the front. When you're not in the peloton after that, it's clear the general level is much higher. He says that he accepts that there's a changing of the guard, but it's amazing how quickly it's happened so suddenly. And then right at the end, he says, um, uh, I have to draw my conclusions, finish my contract, and then it's time for something else. If they are better, then so be it. I'm 34 now and will be 36 at the end of contract. I won't suddenly improve another 5% unless I engage in the wrong things, but I won't do that. So the whole tone of this article was very concerning. Um, and it reminded me of reading Greg LeMond, Andy Hampston. There were a number, I actually tweeted something and I got a number of you replied saying, check this quote, check this quote. Uh, and this is eerily similar to this, what cyclists were saying in the early 90s, mm-hmm. which we know is the point at which EPO came into the peloton. And it created what became known as David Test, the two speeds concept. You've heard that. Yeah. So when I see stuff like that, then the Pogacar performances plus some of the other performances in the sprints from guys who everyone thought were gone and now they're back plus <laughs> well let's say who it is Mark yeah, Cavendish yeah. obviously three stage wins right one away from equaling Eddie Merckx's record now. <laughs> right yeah, incredible. and I, I can't even divorce it from other sports because we've seen okay and the shoes are making a contribution to some of the world records but track and field is 
out of control fast. There have been world records falling regularly in events ranging from shot put to 400 hurdles. So <clears throat> it feels that we've turned some corner. Uh, the trajectory of human performances has gone up. Mm. Now, is, is that because of, of a long year off from COVID and it's just given everyone the chance to reboot and train smarter <laughs> uh, you've got to be really hopeful to have that what as a great your, argument that have is. that of your theory <laughs> in my opinion but i've seen that put forward you know they, all they needed was a year off and now they can come back for it i mean or is there something else going on so i i'm i'm nervous about the state of global sport and we've spoken about it the 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 vacuum in anti-doping created by the lockdowns and so on was always going to be exploited and i don't know if that's what's happening I don't know whether it's just natural progression, like EPO coming into the peloton. I don't know, but it's very it's it's very difficult to look at all sport and say this is fine. As much as that is true, I mean, I don't know why I watch the show, but on television here in South Africa, there's a, a, a show called The Narco Wars, and um, <laughs> it was talking. It was a similar show to this, and they were talking about how the drug trade had been affected by. Um, COVID yeah. and distribution had become a massive problem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as much as I agree with you that certainly not being able to get to athletes to test them, surely the same restrictions should have happened trying to get the product through COVID. So Possibly. it kind of cancels itself out a bit. Possibly N- not being overly positive. I mean, I know I'm sounding like I'm, you know, not not the not not looking at it quite naively, but. There are those things. It's not, it's not like you could suddenly travel all over the world and get all these drugs because no, it wasn't easy to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I, I, we have to also try and look at some positive things here. What yeah. I've just said is obviously framing it in the extremely negative way. I'm, hmm. my, my reaction to what I'm seeing is, 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 is doubt yeah. in all sports. Yeah. And what's happening in the Tour de France and in cycling, in fact, all year is, is the same. I'm not trying to single any one performance out because of the, the broader context. Right. Um, I don't know enough about the, the, the supply of performance-enhancing drugs to know whether that would be a problem. Yeah. I, d- I didn't, for instance, have a problem getting coffee <laughs> during yes. lockdown. And I don't know whether coffee is as freely available to an elite athlete as doping products. It might be unaffected. I don't know. But it's, yeah. it's possible. Fair enough. It's possible. And, and the other counter-argument is that they, they couldn't do the training as effectively because of lockdown. I've heard that been said as well. It compromised some some training from athletes for at least a couple of months. So I genuinely don't know. But whatever it is, I, f- I feel as though we're in a phase of transition, and it's a transition to better performances. I suppose what people will say is, how do you compare the performances of Tadej Pogacar right. against the doping era? So let's just have a look at. Um, there's a great. If you haven't followed him already on Twitter, you should do this. Um, I never forget, say his name correctly, but I'm a Amit Pirelli. I, I, I always thought it was Am- Amadi. Amadi is the first part of that. Amadi. I've got no idea how to pronounce Pirelli. the second part of Pirelli. Anyway, but we'll we'll put the uh, link put up on our show up. notes because he really is somebody worth following. And he does some fantastic work in terms of looking at segments and the history of those segments, mm. particularly on the Tour de France and any of the Grand Tours. And he put up a post after that uh, stage eight talking about the last 6.1 kilometers of Montfon 2 yesterday. Oh, yeah, this is yesterday. This is one, yesterday. Not stage eight. That's yeah. not stage eight. Yeah. This, is sta- this is yesterday. And of course, yesterday, for those of you watching the Tour de France, Jonas Vingegaard obviously put a bit of pressure on uh, on uh, Tele Pogaccia and uh, put a bit of time on him by the top of the climb. Of mm. course, Pogaccia catching on the way down. But looking at those times... The uh, time of uh, of uh, Mark and Pintani, 1827 and 2000. Then Armstrong was 1750 in 2002. 2007, uh, Christophe Moreau, uh, 1714. Andy Schleck and Alberto Contador, 1750. Chris Froome in 2013, 1742. And Miguel Angel Lopez in 2021, 1740. Then Vingegaard yesterday, 1640. So a minute yeah. faster yeah. than Miguel Angel Lopez in 2021. And those times have Progressively got faster since 2000 with Vingegaard now having the record for that last section. And, and obviously he attacked and he dropped uh, the, the, the green, the yellow jersey there yesterday. So it was a fantastic attack. But if there's any proof that performances are right up there right. compared to the history of cycling, they, that is it. And that, that tweet that you're reading from there drew significant uh, eyebrow-raising comments on Twitter, as you can imagine, because... We know the history of the performances that it's being compared to. Yeah. We know how those performances were made. And so that that's why 
and and the same the same can be said by the way of stage eight because Amati also did Pogachar's numbers relative to history and his his climb on the Calderon was significantly faster than anything before it and on the Colombier he was only two seconds off the fastest ever having gone arguably way way faster on the preceding climb so for instance Peter Flax tweeted you know Peter from uh, yeah, your, your media bicycling days editor in the States for a he, while he tweeted this is not a data point that fills me with confidence so this is the kind <laughs> of reaction now it's my turn to play um, it's almost devil's advocate but in a positive way is that called an angel's advocate I don't know but Should be. <laughs> the thing is you, you can't you have to contextualize those performances so for instance when Pantani went up there it, the wind direction could have been the opposite way correct now, anyone who's ridden on a bike, okay, it's a climb. They're not exactly going 45k an hour. So the wind doesn't make that big a difference, but it does. Right. And, and so over 6k's with a trending headwind or a prevailing headwind rather compared to a prevailing tailwind, that's a minute either way potentially. Yeah. You also don't know what's happened before that. Okay, they've never done the Mon Von 2 twice before. Well, I was well, going to say, if they did it so, twice yesterday. So that actually, that actually makes the Vinegard performance maybe a little bit more dodgy. But... <laughs> But the first 8-9k through the forest up to Chalet Renard yesterday was not super aggressive. We've seen attacks go off before they come out of the forest. So, mm. so that, that performance... So, so anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that in the absence of context, the times are only an indicator. They're not necessarily confirmation of anything. And that's, that's been the big problem for me ever since I started trying to track. So Matty is one of three or four people who, going back to 2008-9, started doing this analysis in the Tour de France. And he brings a really logical, systematic, and quite disciplined approach to it. He, sometimes he'll plot pictures of where the climb starts and where the finish line is and then he sits there with his stopwatch and he works it out and he goes on google maps on earth and he works out exactly what the gradients are and he's he's very good about it so what he puts out there is is pretty much close to the truth in terms of the performances right but they're not the power output data yeah and when i started as well we would we were using the performances to work out the vam and then the vam estimates the watts per kilo so the vam just to explain to those that don't know is vertical Ascent meters. Yeah, so in other it's words, the speed at which you ascend vertically. So yeah. from point A to point B on the road is six point one k's on Chalet Renard. I think you've got it there, mm-hmm. but that's a section. I think the gradient's like eight point zero seven percent, if right, I remember. Yeah. yeah. And so it climbs four hundred odd meters or something. Four hundred ninety-two meters. Four ninety-two. Yeah. Yeah. So how quickly did he go from A to B? Mm. Four hundred ninety-two meters. The answer was sixteen minutes forty. So then we can work out his climbing rate in meters per hour. And the infamous Dr. Ferrari had worked out that that gives you an indication of power output in watts per kilo. So there's a formula to calculate. And for Vanegaard there, Vingegaard, I worked it out at 6.3. So that was that effort, a 6.3 watts a kilo effort. But again, if that's, if that's assisted by wind for then, f- 16 minutes, then VAM is overestimating power. Right. If it's into a headwind, VAM will underestimate the power. So really what you need is the power. And I... I ended up losing interest in doing this because I thought back in 2009-10 that at some point the sport would start making power data compulsory and, and oblige athletes to provide it. But they've never done that. So we, we still don't know. So when I read Thomas DeGent saying his numbers are the same as he would produce in a breakaway compared to now hanging on at the back of a peloton of 70, I want to know what those numbers are. When I see Greg Van Avermaet mm-hmm. saying he's producing the same numbers, I'd love to know that that's the case. <coughs> yeah. But we, we sit here 10 years on and we still have to use times and VAM because there's still no... To da- kind no, of guess. To kind of estimate and mm-hmm. infer what's happening. It just, it just feels so, so slow-moving and regressive. I mean, we've discussed a little bit in preceding this podcast about why Tadej Pogacar doesn't actually release his power numbers. Now, he's quite good in terms of releasing his uh, stats on Strava, and you can see most of his rides, and it will show you um, his average speed and his cadence. He doesn't often put up his heart rate. I think, don't think he ever puts his heart rate in there. But, um, but people like Ben O'Connor do put their power in, mm. which is interesting. And his defense, which I think is fair, is that if you give away too much in terms of when you are hurting, when you're not, you potentially give your competitors um, something to work 
with when you're trying to break an athlete. So if you're riding up a climb and you know that Pogacar was looking was pushing pretty hard there when you maybe were showing a face that didn't look like he was going that hard, you have an opportunity to be able to get a bit of an upper hand on him. Um, is that fair? I, that, that's his defense. Yeah, I saw that. He was asked what... So it was interesting because I think the context was he said, what more can I do? And someone said, we'll provide your power, Dad. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that because it would give my advantages tactical opportunities to, yes, to beat me. And which I, I think is quite a fair argument. I've heard that argument since 2009. I remember at the beginning of this process discussing it and saying the riders should provide it, and people said, no, 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 because then you give, uh, give away how, you, how you've won. I can't see it. I honestly cannot see that that is a credible reason not to provide power because I, I can't figure out how Carapaz would exploit knowing... Pogacar's numbers to beat him. I just, I just can't, I can't see a scenario in which Carapaz or Vingegaard or anyone in that in that front group of top guys is going to say, right, now we're at 6.1. I know that Pogacar's weak here. Because you, you already know what he's producing. Because Carapaz knows his numbers. Yes. And he knows that when Pogacar attacked him, he put three minutes on him and he put, let's say it was one minute per five kilometers of climbing. Well, now what? <laughs> Because, A, he can make a very good estimate for what Pogacar is doing. Because if Carapaz was riding six and he's losing a minute every five, Pogacar is doing 6.2, 6.3. So, in my opinion, they already know what one another is capable of doing. Yes. But knowing it and actually doing anything about it is two different things. In track and field, in, in middle distance running, everyone knows how Robert Chariot is going to try and win the 1500. Everybody knew how Mo Farah would try and win a 10,000-meter race down to the hundredth of a second per 400 meters. Yeah. Didn't change a thing about the outcome. So I can understand that a rider wouldn't want to reveal their power output from training, but I can't see why they wouldn't want power output from a race to guard. I just, I, I cannot see how that num- those numbers can be exploited to, be, to, to, to beat another guy. I suppose in the very best case scenario or in the case of the athletes if they do have this argument is there not a suggestion then that maybe they should be have they should be able to deliver those sort of power numbers to the authorities so that the authorities can look at them they might be kept confidential although nothing's ever confidential in this day and age Mm. but you know at least if there is some way of them proving where they were because Let's. I mean, let's just very briefly look at those numbers. If, you, if you're talking about a guy like, um, uh, like the yellow jersey, um, Pogaccia going up the Col de Rome and the Col de Colombier, um, the Col de Colombier, at around six point one, six point two watts per kilo, that is within the realms of possibility. We're not talking, you know, inhuman performance here. Yeah. So the 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 principle you're talking about there now is 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 fairly basic. Is your power output, the, the, the power output measured at the, at the bike, is the result of the input to the pedals, right. which is itself the result of the physiological processes that allow that input. Make sense? So yeah. if you work it backwards from how fast the bike moves to the power output making the bike move fast, there are certain inferences that can be drawn about the system that allows that to happen. It, I've always used the analogy, like if I'm standing on the side of the road and a, and a car comes by it, 350 kilometers an hour I know that that car's got a certain engine size and a certain aerodynamic potential because it could not be going that fast without it yeah does this make sense yep so when we talk about cycling we're talking about the size of that engine vo2 max how efficient is the machine and what capacity does that machine have to run at a high percentage of max for a long time those are the three points of a triangle which determine the performance capabilities yes and when you, when you, the thing is, you've got to make a couple of assumptions. I think you can make safe assumptions and it works. You can work out, for instance, that for a rider to do 6.2 watts a kilo for 25 minutes, he would have to have a VO2 max between 80 and 85 and be 23 to 24% efficient. Now, that is extraordinary human physiology. It's exceptionally rare, but it's possible. Right. So the short answer to your question is that all the performances we've seen, and this includes the Which performances... Which is kind of Pogacar's numbers, isn't it? I would imagine that probably... The, the power output is. Yes. We don't know what the physiology underpinning it is, right. but it, it has to be that. Something around that. What, yeah. You see, what that doesn't tell you is how that physiology was made. 
because if it, if it was made through dodgy means, like it's still there. Yes. But we, we, you don't know that, right? So all you know is that the the physiology of the rider doing what we've seen, and not just him, Vingegaard, Carapaz, they're all in the same ballpark, as were Pantani, Veronk, Armstrong, Ulrich, Reese. Okay, and some of the performances in the 90s were so good that actually they, they defied physiology because they yes, actually crossed the over yeah. from that gray zone into the red zone. Mm. But everything we saw from Armstrong, from Froome, from... Ulrich from Pantani could not be distinguished on the basis of physiology. They're all in the in the gray zone. And so I was very interested in that um, a number of years ago, like to track it. But in the end, not the error, but the human variation around those three physiological metrics is large enough that the zone is gray enough that you can't make certain conclusions based on it. Yeah, so what what we're saying now is that what Pogacar is doing now is in within the acceptable realms, although it's at the very high end of it. Um, but the questions that are, mm. are being asked of him are probably fair given the context of cycling's history. Yeah, and and yeah. The, and specifically the performance that he produced. You know, the the thing that's most striking is there is a you know if if you start from the assumption and it's it's not a perfect assumption. It's almost like in economics you get this free market hypothesis that the share price is set perfectly based on all the information. There's a there's a kind of like performance physiology hypothesis that if a sport is truly global, the the best athletes will be quite close to one another because they're all maximizing equipment, training, physiology, nutrition, psychology and maybe doing some slightly naughty things on the side. <laughs> but there'll be but there'll be a group of athletes who are quite close to one another. Yeah. And when you see one person who's exceptional relative to those, there are going to be there have to be questions about that because you really well, then you'd have to question things like Nadal, Federer, you, Djokovic, which I hope people tennis. do. Yeah. Do they? Yeah. Hard to question that they're certainly dominant well, tennis players. There is a slight difference. It's because an era, it, isn't it? Because. Because there are more degrees of freedom in how to win a tennis match than how to win a cycling event. Yes. I remember true. the best... But there are outliers that outperform the rest of the competitors purely because... Right, so Bolt is one such example. Yeah. And when you look at a list of um, the top 50 performances or the top 20 athletes of all time, there's a red line through basically every single one of them except Bolt for doping purposes. Mm. And then you say, well, he's, he's that good that he was this much better than all the dopers or... Well, draw your own conclusions. You see, that's the that's the dilemma. That's the sports fans' dilemma. And so, similarly yes. with with Pogacar now, um, you've got a group of I think there were eight to ten guys in that group that he attacked on stage eight. Those eight to ten minus him all finished that stage locked together. So, in other words, that's that's like the limit of of the next best bunch. Yes. And then there's a guy three minutes twenty out ahead. That's why there are questions. It's anyone who says you shouldn't ask questions based on performance to me is 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 pretending there's no issue. There has to be a question about it, but we just don't know what the answer to that question is, unfortunately. I, I guess to some extent it's hard for me necessarily to say that I it's it, not to sound naive when it comes to these sort of things, but I do believe that there are athletes out there that are exceptional. And I, I think there are generations where you can have one or two athletes that can particularly dominate Bolt being an example mm-hmm. of that I think there was something around watching a guy like Bolt I think there's something about Tadej Pogacar that for me feels that he's not well performing he looks like the Ghana guy that can perform amazingly well he just seems to have the physiology right his performance up called the Roman uh, the called the, the Colombier was performances where for me being a slightly heavier rider than people like Carapaz, it wasn't a super steep climb, but it was just steep enough for him to be able to power away, and it suited his style um, more than it maybe suited Carapaz, um, mm. who would, might, might be better on a much steeper climb. So those are all the sort of factors that mm. maybe keep me into, that keep well, me interested in the sport purely because I do like to believe what I see seeing is is true. Well, um, until it isn't. No, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that, and I'll say I, sh- I share the. You see, for me, it's not a it's not a slam dunk. I mean, I think there've been yeah. other athletes in the past I've been much more suspicious of. And one of the one of the other things actually that he he at least has in his favour is that he, he didn't emerge out of nowhere. Um, yeah, there was no sudden transformation mid career. That, as I said earlier in this very podcast, that to me is the biggest sign. 
Um, mm. And we've seen that so often in the past of athletes in all different sports who've, who really have no business and then all of a sudden make the step. Now, again... Well, that, the last thing that Pogaccia did was finish school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, so, he was, then the next couple of years later, he's winning the Tour de France. So at least there's, at least there's pedigree there. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure. Which which you can't say about some other athletes who've who've been around in, in many different sports. Um late career revivals, transformations. And the thing is there, it's also even there it's quite unfair because it it could literally be a twenty five, twenty six year old that just works out five things to change and each of those five things creates in him one, two percent and he suddenly ends up six percent better and now he's a contender. Yeah. But we're so conditioned by patterns, you know, and Hmm. Performance is one of those patterns we recognize. Transformations is another one. Context of the race is one. The other one that worries me most about cycling is that the same characters are there that were there in the 90s. They've just got different roles and different shapes and guises. They're obviously new ones, but Hmm. a lot of the guys who were the riders that we know, like doing extreme dodgy things in the 90s, early 2000s, are now team directors with all the different teams. And then you've got to say... Has the incentive balance changed enough that those guys would have suddenly become pure and honest? Or is the same incentive system in place and they've just found ways to exist within it? You see, that's the that's the problem. I And then you get to situations that we have now, good or bad, that we have a, a sort of Slovenian domination well, uh, with Matt Mohoric and those guys doing particularly well and those, those, some of those team directors on Bayern victorious yep. yeah, Slovenians. There's, there's that. And I mean, again... <laughs> there's all sorts of conspiracy theories. So you talk about pattern, conspiracy you talk about pattern recognition. If yeah. I said to you, like, go back in history and give me the, the most obvious glaring examples of doping, you can say Chinese woman. Okay, it's one pocket. You could do the same East German athletes even mm. before that. Um, we know in distance running that there are pockets of this dodgy behavior in Kenya, Ethiopia. So, yeah, whenever you see a geographic location suddenly producing um, athletes... <laughs> is certainly doing that. So, anyway, the point is that there yeah. are no clear answers, but there are so many mm. little patterns that compel doubt. It's, it's lousy. It really is. It's a miserable topic to have it to is. discuss. I agree. Yeah, so whatever your thoughts are, let us know on our Twitter feed, uh, Sports Side Pod is how you can engage with us. Let us know whether you agree with uh, us or whether you disagree or whether we're too cynical or maybe too naive about what speaking we're watching. Of, yes? Speaking of thoughts, so I, I went on Patreon yes. and we welcome a, ba- we do need to welcome a bunch a few of patrons. patrons too. I almost forgot that. On, on the rest day, Pogaccio was asked about trustworthiness of his performances in the sort of virtual press conference. And his answer there was that he passes all the tests that he's done. And he, he spoke on that particular day about doing two in the morning and one in the afternoon. And I suppose, again, speaking of patterns, whenever an athlete says, I've never failed a test, who do they think of? The, the viewers, they think of... <laughs> Sir Lance. <laughs> they think of Lance, who once said 500 tests, most tested athlete ever, and we know how that ended. So, so Pogaccia's answer to that question drew quite a lot of discussion. So I said to the patrons, how would you answer it? So before I get into theirs, I'm going to ask you, Mike, if you were Pogaccia, well, no, if you, were, if you were Mike Finch in yellow in the Tour de France, <laughs> producing dominant rides. And I imagine said, myself sometimes on my training rides winning the Tour de France. So imagine that your imagination is realized <laughs> and the journalist says, Mike, you're dominating the best cyclist in the world. How can we trust you? Is there an answer you could give that would convince people? Well, I think the answer is what we've discussed here, to say that is it acceptable to be um, suspicious. Um, and I think that is fair. I think any athlete or anybody in a cycling team that gets defensive about people asking these questions, which is often what happens, and we see that as journalists over the last couple of years, that uh, you ask this difficult question and there's suddenly this kind of you know, quite aggressive comeback. But I, I think it is fair to answer these questions, and I think that the more transparent teams can be, the better. I do believe that Pog's not submitting his power data to the public is not necessarily a a bad thing. But again, maybe there is a way for him to submit that power data once in a while to the authorities so that they can see whether things are feasible or not. Maybe that's the answer. Okay, fair enough. Similar to what some of you said, Craig Farrell got in touch, said two words, you can't. (laughs) <laughs> in response to the question, can we trust you? Exactly, you can't. You can't. No one's going to say that. Um, but but that's that's unfortunately the state, well, of, the, the state of the game. Yeah. Well, 
I think what Craig's saying is you can't you can't trust me. Mm. Um, uh, someone called Adult Paulie B, interesting, said I would turn it back on the reporter, stating my blood passport is available to view by the authorities, not the general public. I've not failed or missed a test. Can you tell me what more I can do to satisfy you? I could give you my power data and training information, but not wish for that to be published. What guarantees can you give me that you would not do that? So that's we touched on that a little bit. Yeah. It's a good answer. Good answer. Turning it back on them and saying, what do you want? is an interesting way to do it. Remember Sky invited Kimmage to come to their camp in response to a very similar question and then they didn't let him have access. And that was probably the worst thing to do is you can't ask what you want and then not give it when they ask. Uh, Jan Melikar, throw it back, he said. And then number two is give blood and urine samples to store for a decade to test if new tests come up. Just in case you are thought to be using stuff that's so new as to be undetectable today and not tomorrow. Ian, got in touch, publish all my blood passport data and ask yourself, Robin or Richard, I don't know whether I would be the expert there, but there certainly are others to look closely into it. Aiden, radical transparency is the only way. Take the most fervent critic and ask them what data they'd like to see. And that's that's what I would kind of what we're saying. That's yeah. what I would do. I would yeah. I would say radical transparency is the key. I wish that it was uh what's the word, systematized. That sounds like jargon. I wish that it was um designed in the system such that either the power output goes to the authorities at a bare minimum or publicly just put it out i i still i know we discussed if everybody's st- putting it out then i still cannot see how an advantage is is given away a secret it's just in a race situation i just i've been thinking about it even sitting here now you know because they could they could work out your ftp yeah and they could know more or less like on attacks like this guy's got three attacks in him and the fourth one will crack him. Maybe, maybe there. But but knowing it and change Anyway, I just can't see it. <laughs> uh, Anthony Berman and Darren. Darren Jark sent an interesting one. He says, my work has me evaluating the credibility of witnesses. I therefore have some idea about how compelling testimony appears. However, this question has me stopped. I mean, it is a an answerable question. I can only suggest that you should explain why being a clean athlete is important to you. You can also explain how you would guide a person who is contemplating the use of a performance-enhancing drugs. These types of questions are difficult to answer if you are trying to deceive. I note that people caught using PEDs rarely speak on these subjects before media. It's interesting, there are people who've spoken in the past about the, there's a typical language that a doper uses when they ask these questions. And it's interesting, you know, like I've never failed a test. Why not say I've never used a banned substance? It's the same thing, but you can only truthfully say yes. I've never failed the test. It's not a particularly so, convincing argument that is. Yeah, I've never failed the test. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're not taking the drugs. Exactly. <laughs> so you're actually saying the same thing, yes. but, but you're it's saying it in a way, way that's truthful without acknowledging that you're not a dope. So anyway, this, yeah. you can see how this is a rabbit hole and people dive down it. And we've dived down it in this podcast yeah. without resolution. It's very difficult. Yeah. Well, thank you to our patron uh, supporters. Uh, we do have a couple of uh, patron supporters since last week, uh, which I think Ross wanted to read out. He's going to quickly look at the list. A couple of yeah. our uh, thank yous going your way. Yeah, after last week, I realized if we don't do this regularly, uh, I end up reading 30 names out. <laughs> like so, we did last like week. Like last time. And that's not exactly the greatest listen in your lives. So this time <laughs> we, we'll do it more consistently. And this week we have six to welcome. On the Olympic athlete level, um, thanks very much for your pledges, Ian Harrison, Lars Hubacher, and that's the two Olympic athletes. We have three Olympic champions, Michelle Modrijan, Daniel Crossingham, and Nicholas Kemp. Thanks for your pledges. That's the middle tier. And then one Olympic legend who also sent us a lovely message, Bev Martin, said that she studied sports science in the 90s, but certainly didn't go into it but has now, thanks to the podcast, rediscovered her love for the field. Oh, so that's wonderful praise. Lovely. And thanks very much for your play of pledge, Bev. And that's it for the patrons this week. So keep the support coming, guys. We obviously really appreciate it and keeps us going. I was My dad is a big supporter and listener of the pod, and he's yet to contribute to the <laughs> Patreon. Uh, my brothers have both contributed, but I had a, a bit of a word. So every time you read that list out, I hope to see my dad's name in there. But again... No support. So well, this, this time it comes at the end of the pod. So if he doesn't, if he <laughs> well, doesn't we'll do it now, it's because he didn't listen he didn't all the way to the end. He was, he was so put off by the doping talk. He said, forget this. I'm, 
and unfollowing. <laughs> well, for those of you watching the Tour de France or watching all the Euro soccer happening at the moment, lots of excitement around uh, sport and, of course, Olympic Games coming up. And uh, we'll have plenty to talk about over the next uh, couple of weeks. We'll begin bringing you more on the Tour de France uh, next week and the week after that and then building our content towards Olympic Games. You've got some very special interviews lined up, particularly in the smaller sports, and uh, we'll be releasing those closer to the time of the Olympic Games to give you an idea of how those smaller sports work. And just to give you a bit of a wet your appetite a bit, we had a conversation with a climbing expert yesterday, and it's fascinating to see how climbing works Olympic Games, and certainly a sport that I'm going to be watching out uh, for, for that. So uh, yes, keep that in mind. Uh, keep watching your, our social media, and uh, don't forget to click subscribe to our podcast and of course uh, follow us on twitter sports pod and we'll let you know exactly what's happening and when but from us for now it's goodbye thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports pod and on instagram at science of sport podcast Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.